Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's get started with five things to know for this Labor Day, Monday, September 4th. 70,000 people are stranded in the Nevada desert for the third straight day, but roads could reopen today. Now, people at the Burning Man Festival are stuck in ankle-deep mud too thick to drive on, forcing organizers to impose shelter-in-place orders. A new clue in an urgent manhunt in Pennsylvania. This surveillance footage shows a convicted killer less than two miles from the prison where he escaped. He's still on the run this morning. Donald Trump dominates the 2024 Republican field and pulls even further ahead in a new Wall Street Journal poll. He's the top choice for almost 60 percent of Republican voters. In fact, 78 percent of them say Trump's actions after the 2020 election were legitimate. And this morning, Ukraine's defense minister is out. He was fired by the nation's president who says Ukraine needs, quote, new approaches as the war with Russia enters its 19th month. And workers at Detroit's big three automakers prepare to walk off the job in less than two weeks if the unions and the companies can't reach a deal on a new labor contract. A strike against all three at once has never happened before, and it could have a big impact on the economy. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good Monday morning, everybody. Audie Cornish is back with me. We hope you had a great weekend. And certainly if you're watching any news this weekend, it was almost entirely focused on this. Officials in Nevada say the roads out of Burning Man Festival grounds may reopen today after a rare but heavy downpour that amounted to less than one inch of rain turned the grounds of the Black Rock Desert into a muddy, sticky mess, inundated campsites, and leaving tens of thousands of people trapped in the desert. You don't expect this kind of rain and the effect. Nobody's ever seen this kind of effect in there ever. Now, attendees were told to conserve food, fuel and water after it became impossible for them to even walk or drive their vehicles on the ground. But some people who were there said it wasn't so bad. My friends are trying to message me if I'm okay, but in reality, it was really nice. Things actually felt not only safe and, and comfortable for the, the vast majority of people, from my impression, but actually fun. We all came together and uh, made the best of it. Then organizers say plans to set fire to the iconic effigy could happen tonight, and the exodus of campers will likely start later today. CNN's Camilla Bernal reports from Burning Man. We planned on leaving right after the burn, which is Saturday night. Um, and then it started raining on us, like that night. A dramatic washout at Burning Man, trapping tens of thousands at the festival and delaying the event's marquee moment when a massive wooden effigy known as the man is set on fire. The decades-old gathering in the Black Rock Desert is no stranger to extreme heat, but rarely like this. You're sinking. I think barefoot's the way to go. Two to three months worth of rain falling in just 24 hours, turning the desert ground into thick cement-like paste. 
Festival goer Dean Zeller from Santa Monica, California shot this video with his ankle deep into the mud. And from the air, you can see the standing water, muddy roads and countless RVs, vans, trucks and other vehicles parked and helpless. When it was really wet, you couldn't do anything. You just lived here. There's really no way to walk miles, you know, to get out of it. We couldn't leave. <laughs> like we were stuck, basically. People couldn't could barely walk, let alone ride their bikes or drive out of here. And so that started getting a little scary. Many of those who tried to drive away were stuck. The situation so concerning that even President Joe Biden was briefed on the matter. While organizers have often described the festival as a self-expression event where harshness meets creativity, few expected it to be this bad. It's a survival event. Like you come out here to be in a harsh climate and you prepare for that. Event organizers said roads remained, quote, too wet and muddy, and local authorities have told thousands of people to shelter in place, though some attendees braved the conditions to make it out, <laughs> including actor and comedian Chris Rock and another festival attendee, DJ Diplo. They posted a series of videos as they trekked more than six miles in the mud before the two got a ride on the back of a fan's pickup truck. Local officials are urging those still on site to conserve food, water, and fuel. Still, some attendees downplayed fears, telling us they think they'll manage just fine. I don't think that it's gonna like people are gonna like starve or do anything over there. The community in itself would help each other, and there's a lot of people who overstock for this thing too. It's really beautiful, actually, when you go into the camps. Everybody was helping each other out. Camila Bernal, CNN, Black Rock City. So how did just 0.8 inches of rain completely cut these people off so quickly? Well, meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now. Uh, and Derek, give us an idea of how this happened. Yeah, Audie, it's all about the topsoil. So what you're looking at here with our 3D visualization tool is the difference between desert topsoil and our earthy topsoil that you and I might use to plant our vegetables in our garden, for instance. So we call that loam, right? And water, as it rains, easily absorbs into that loam or that earthy topsoil. But when you're talking about rain that continuously falls within the desert, it doesn't take much to start pooling up and then mixing in with that clay, creating that very muddy cement-like mixture that ultimately caused so many thousands of people to get stuck and stranded in the desert of Nevada. I mean, just take a look at some of these visuals. The uh, aerial visuals really speak for themselves. I mean, look at these cars. You can see the muddy tracks and you can see completely abandoned vehicles because they simply cannot drive. It is too thick. It is too difficult to navigate that type of cement-like mixture that uh, is a combination of the water not absorbing back into the ground. We call that an impermeable surface and the simply the amount of rain that fell in such a short period of time. Here's the radar, and uh, you can see there are no flood watches in effect for the Black Rock Basin. Uh, this is known as a playa. Uh, in fact, we're going to dry things out rather quickly here over the next 24 hours. So as soon as we get the sun to rise this morning, we'll get that typical evaporation that would happen within this playa that you see uh, just north of Empire. That shading of white, that is a dry basin across the desert, and uh, it normally evaporates the water when we get that break in the rain, but that simply didn't happen because the rain continuously fell over the same areas for a period of time on Friday and Saturday. But the good news is, Audie, is that the rain has come to an end and we'll start to dry things out rather quickly for uh, Black Rocks and Burning Man.
Back to you. Thank you for that. And yeah. in our eight o'clock hour, we're going to be joined by DJ and music producer Diplo. We mentioned earlier that he and comedian Chris Rock actually hitched a ride with a fan out of Burning Man. So we'll have a live interview with him ahead. Well, so this morning, a new Wall Street Journal poll shows former President Trump dominating among his Republican rivals. But what about a potential Trump-Biden matchup? Those numbers coming up next. And right now, Vladimir Putin is meeting with Turkey's president. The significance of these talks ahead. I've never seen anything like this with Donald Trump. I mean, what doesn't kill you make you stronger? I mean, being convicted, I mean, being indicted, that's making him stronger. Raising $10 million using an ugly mugshot. Uh, to raise money, this is a movement. And anyone who thinks that you can apply the old political rules to trying to defeat this candidate based on he's scary, he's ugly, whatever you might want to call him, this is a movement. And we have to respect the fact that it's a movement. That was former Democratic National Committee Chairwoman Donna Brazile underscoring the formidable nature, particularly in the Republican Party, that Donald Trump continues to hold. A new Wall Street Journal poll, well, it backs her up. 59% of Republican primary voters support Trump. He's up 11 points from April when this poll was last taken. Look at this. Trump is still in a dead heat with President Biden in a hypothetical head-to-head rematch. 46% apiece. Let's bring in CNN political analyst and host of the podcast, Conversations with Coleman, Coleman Hughes, as well as CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. He's also an editor at The Atlantic. His latest piece is headlined, Why Biden Just Can't Shake Trump in the Polls. And Ron, I think the, the value of this piece, uh, and I say this often about your analysis, is, you know, you listen to Donna Brazil, you listen to people talk, and it's just this constant, how, why, why does this keep happening, even after seven years of it? always happening to some degree. And your piece really kind of cracks the code to some degree and and almost breaking out the why here with four kind of core pillars. What are they? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, obviously one reason, Phil, good morning, first of all, happy Labor Day, everybody. Um, One reason is that we're really dug in as a country and there are not many voters who are going to switch side for whatever reason, whatever is going on. But beyond that, there really are four core factors, I think, that are shaping the environment for 2024. Two of them are weakening President Biden. Two of them are weakening Donald Trump. I mean, for Biden, the headwinds are concerns about his age. Again, today, consistently in that Wall Street Journal poll, three quarters of Americans say they think he is too old uh, to serve as president for another term. Uh, And inflation. Uh, Inflation is incredibly scarring for voters. And it is, uh, at this point, largely eclipsing the positive news that Biden has on a variety of economic fronts, particularly job creation and the jobs that are specifically flowing out of the trio of big bills he's passed in the first few years. So age and inflation on one side. On the other side, abortion and insurrection are weakening uh, are weakening Trump. Abortion was a powerful weapon for Democrats in 22, not everywhere, but in the key swing states that will likely decide 24, including Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Clear majority of voters wanted abortion to stay legal, and a big majority of them voted for Democrats. And the other factor is insurrection. Uh, You know, there is a majority of Americans who believe that what he did after 2020 was illegal and unconstitutional, even though Republican voters overwhelmingly take the opposite position. And when you add up age and inflation on one side uh, and abortion and insurrection on the other, what that adds up to right now is stalemate. Coleman, I want to turn to you because we heard Donna Brazil there admitting something that a lot of people feel like they have known mm-hmm. <laughs> for the better part of eight years. Mm-hmm. So have Democrats really made the adjustment that they need to to account for what she's talking about? 
Yeah, well, it remains to be seen, but, and, and that was a great analysis, I, I think, by Ron just now. So you've got these, these two factors on each side which seem to equal each other out. The question is, you know, are there gonna, what, what other factors are going to emerge? So, for example, independent voters may end up caring quite a bit about the emerging Hunter Biden scandal, right? Is that going to tip the scales? Who knows? Is there going to be, uh, as the Trump indictments evolve, is the, uh, the, the optics of that going to continue to help Trump within the GOP or, but, but hurt him with independence, which is what has happened thus far? I think you see this 60% number, right? We should remember before the indictments, Trump was polling closer to 40%. And that's what I would call, that, that's what you might call like the personality cult. Those are the people that just like Trump no matter what. After the indictments, there's another 20% of Republican voters or so that have come home to Trump because they feel that he is persecuted and they need to rally to his defense by nominating him. Right. Not uh, so and, much a vote for him, but in a way a vote against the exactly, forces, yeah. the various forces are upset with. Exactly. And that might be an own goal because in the end, even though Biden is, is in some ways a candidate with some weaknesses, Trump is still not the best bet for beating him. So in some way, Republicans may have to choose between nominating Trump and beating Biden. And the way things are looking now, it looks like they want to choose nominating Trump. You know, Ron, to that point, because I think everybody looks at, first off, national polls this far out uh, on a head-to-head basis. I just, I, I'm interested in them. I definitely want to see trend lines in them. I'm not mm-hmm. totally sold on, on uh, why they have a significant impact in the race. But the idea of, to Coleman's point, if you break down going into a general election, which has long been my question, and then you look at, you know, the, where, the states that really matter, and you kind of nailed them, where it could actually come down to the fact that this is literally just a Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona type of moment. Uh, going into the fall of 2024. When you look at those dynamics that you're talking about, the the kind of four key pillars there, how do those states break based on those dynamics, do you think? Right. Uh, Phil, the first point is that we are looking at an historically small number of swing states that will almost certainly decide the winner in 2024. You know, there are 40 states that have voted the same way in each of the past four presidential elections, which is the highest level of consistency uh, since at least the turn of the 20th century. Even Roosevelt's four consecutive wins, Franklin Roosevelt, not as many, not as high a share of states voted uh, the same way. So we're looking at a tiny battlefield. And I think one thing that kind of reassures Democrats amid all of this bad news uh, about Biden and the resistance to Biden uh, in the polls is that in 2022, I think the results clearly show that Democrats still have an easier path to 270 than Republicans, especially if it's Trump. I mean, Democrats did win the governorship in Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania uh, and Wisconsin with almost 80 percent of voters saying they were dissatisfied by the economy and a majority of voters uh, saying that they disapproved of Biden's performance or didn't want him to run again because of his age. And they did so because their concerns about abortion and democracy outweighed their concerns about Biden. But I will say that while that analysis is somewhat reassuring to Democrats, there is a lot more anxiety than there was six or eight months ago about the persistence of this unease in the electorate about reelecting Biden to another term. But I do agree that it could look different over time with convictions and once you face the actual reality of Trump, but they are in a much tougher, more precarious overall situation than I think that almost any of them could have imagined when these indictments started coming down. 
Now, the reason why these states are locked, the reason why this map feels so locked in some is in part because of gerrymandering, right? And in part because of our congressional maps. Um, I want to talk about Florida because a judge there has rejected a congressional map that Ron DeSantis was pushing. Um, and so this is a battle and basically where DeSantis is fighting um, with fellow Republicans. Mm-hmm. Now, his map actually eliminated two heavily black districts. Um, can you talk about this ruling in the context of what else is going on in Florida with DeSantis and black voters? Yeah. Sure. So I think we're, you know, we're so often in the in the business of delivering bad political news. I think this is a moment for restoring faith in the role of an independent judiciary, because what you see right now is a Republican nominated judge essentially policing his own side. Right. Saying that that is not a valid way of redistricting uh, the uh, the the districts in Florida. And that's diluting the black vote. Right. That's the role of the judiciary. And it restores faith that the judiciary is not just playing politics by other means, but is actually using jurisprudence to uphold the Constitution. Now, in the context of what's been going on, we've seen some other hopeful examples as well. Just a few months ago, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that Alabama's redistricting was similarly unconstitutional. And Brett Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberal justices there. And last year, you saw New York's highest court uh, where In that case, the Democrat uh, proposal for redistricting was was rejected. So we've seen some hopeful examples of courts really doing their jobs and providing that check and that balance. Yeah, it's an interesting point because you see these rulings and I think a lot of us immediately go, well, that's plus one D in the House races or that's plus two. You're counting seats as opposed to saying like, oh, no, okay, everybody talks about gerrymandering and kind of this amorphous top lines scolding way. This is what's supposed to happen, I guess, to some degree right. in that sense. Um, all right, Ron Brownstein, Coleman Hughes, thanks, guys, very much. Uh, Ron's latest analysis, one year out, here's what we know about how the presidential race will look on Labor Day 2024, is on CNN.com. Very productive for a Labor Day weekend, Ron Brownstein. Ahead, we want to talk international. We'll be hearing why President Zelensky is getting rid of his defense minister as Russia's war enters its 19th month. And see the moment an extravagant gender reveal turned deadly. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Overnight, Russia launched a massive attack on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine's Odessa region and a drone attack on the east. Ukraine reports destruction to communities, warehouses, industrial buildings and agricultural equipment. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky fired his defense minister as his country enters the 19th month of war. 
Alexei Reznikov has been through more than 550 days of full-scale war. I believe that the ministry needs new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society as a whole. CNN's Melissa Bell is live with us from Ukraine with more. First, let's talk about this decision. Why has Zelensky dropped his defense minister? Well, what we understand, Audi, was that this came at the request of Oleksiy, Oleksiy Reznikov, who's been widely praised uh, for what he's done over the last 18 months, a pretty uh, firm record that he's shown in a very difficult job. Uh, but also, this is about really drawing a line around against uh, some of those scandals that we've seen, corruption allegations, investigations that have gone on, procurement scandals that have emerged. Many of them, I think it's important to note, that had to do with the early days of the war, with Ukrainian taxpayers' money, uh, with Ukrainian weapons, but that have still uh, dogged the image of the country, not just as it seeks to get more weapons from its Western allies, but of course, more broadly, Audi, as uh, Ukraine looks to joining NATO at some point, and it's more fundamental aim of being able to join the European Union. So Kyiv has been at pains to show that it is cracking down on these corruption allegations, taking them extremely seriously, dealing with them. And whilst Alexei Reznikov has not been tainted by them at all, this really allows them to draw a line, even as arrests are being made and investigations uh, are being drawn to a close, to draw a line uh, under those first 18 months of the war. Now, the man taking over, a Crimean Tatar, uh, Rustem Umarov, who's widely seen as a safe pair of hands. This is a man who has, uh, uh, after all, been involved in several prisoner swaps throughout the war. He's a businessman who's also been involved in the uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative and is widely seen there as a very competent man to take over. Let's be clear what must be arguably one of the hardest jobs in the world going forward. As you said, the 19th month of this war, it isn't just about sustaining the war effort and getting uh, Ukrainian weapons up and going. It is also, of course, about holding the alliance together and keeping momentum there from Western Alliance uh, members, who at this point are also getting extremely tired of this war. Abby. Melissa, before I let you go, what does this mean for this counteroffensive we've been hearing about so much? Well, this is going to be important because, again, this is a man who's going to take over when they're looking to get the weapons that will help feed this counteroffensive that is making progress to the south of Zaporizhia. Small assault units that are heading down, trying to extend the bridgehead to the south of Robotina, that one village that has been recaptured. And it is significant because it does give them momentum and allow them to look further southwards in their aims. Getting the right, right weaponry to what will be a bigger assault down there as they seek to draw uh, Russian elite frontline troops from elsewhere along the front line will be crucial and is the next weeks and months uh, that will be uh, really significant and important to making this happen, Audi. Melissa Bell, thanks for this detail. Well, right now, a high-stakes meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the president of Turkey is getting underway in Russia. It is a rare, very rare visit to the country by a NATO leader as war rages in Ukraine. But Erdogan is trying to convince Putin to re-enter a deal to allow Ukrainians to export grain and prevent a global food crisis. I want to bring in CNN International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson. Uh, Nick, it is a rare visit for anybody not named uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan to some degree, which underscores, I think, his fascinating place within the geopolitical landscape, particularly over the course of the last several months. Wins re-election when uh, that seemed in doubt for a time. Helps clear the way for a NATO member that seemed also very much in doubt at some time. Now this grain deal is pulled off the table by President Putin, trying to get it back on track to some degree. Uh, how does this proceed? 
Well, Putin is saying in the opening comments we've just seen where the two of them met, this is sort of a preamble uh, supposedly to their meeting. Um, Putin is saying, look, I know that you've come to talk to me about the grain deal. We're open to negotiations. But what we've heard from the Kremlin over the past few days, a Turkish foreign minister met with a Russian foreign minister towards the end of last week. And the Russian position is, look, what the UN is offering, and the UN sent concrete proposals to Russia last week saying, uh, we want you back in the deal and this is the way to do it. The Russians are saying, hold on, uh, you're just saying, let's do this. There are promises in there. We want hard guarantees. But also, Russia has another plan. Putin's got this alternate plan to get his grain, Russia's grain, to the international markets. Uh, and that is to ship it to Turkey and then have Turkey ship it onto the rest of the world. Now, of course, Ukraine has said that deal shouldn't fly. There should be no way that Russia can thwart and subvert this UN-brokered grain deal. Um, all of Ukraine's backers are saying, you know, Russia needs to get back in compliance. This was Russia's war of choice in Ukraine. The reason it can't get its grain and fertilizer to international markets the way it wants to is because it started a war. Um, easy solution, right? And the war, you would think. But Putin here seems to be trying to negotiate for some leverage, something better, uh, perhaps better access to international financial markets. But Russia's point is they're not getting their goods to market the way they want to. Ukraine shouldn't be able to do it, uh, and they've been blocking it, and that's, and that's where things stand. Can Erdogan make a difference? Potentially, but Putin's got a plan. He wants, he wants, an alternate, he wants his alternate plan. Yeah, the global ramifications here are immense. Uh, Nick, keep us posted. The meeting just underway. If you hear anything more in terms of what comes out of it. Nick Robertson for us. Thank you. And Burger King is facing a lawsuit from customers who say they did not have it their way. We'll speak to a lawyer suing the company for false advertising. And as students head back to school, one important supply could be left off the list. ADHD medication, the real impact of the nationwide shortage. That's ahead. This is the first time that me and other people with ADHD are starting a new school year without our medication in some cases. And I think time is going to tell whether or not we sink or swim as a collective ADHD community. Have it your way. Just about everybody knows that's the famous Burger King slogan from the chain that prides itself on flame-grilled beef burgers. But some customers say they haven't been getting it their way and they're suing claiming that the Whoppers depicted on the in-store menu boards are bigger than what they actually got. Now, a class action lawsuit filed by our next guest alleges, quote, Burger King advertises its burgers as large burgers compared to competitors and containing oversized meat patties and ingredients that overflow over the bun to make it appear the burgers are approximately 35% larger in size and contain more than double the meat than the actual burger. Burger King has responded in a statement saying, quote, the plaintiff's claims are false. The flame grilled beef patties portrayed in our advertising are the same patties used in the millions of Whopper sandwiches we serve to guests nationwide. Joining us now is Anthony Russo. He's a lawyer behind the class action lawsuit against Burger King and has filed similar lawsuits against Wendy's, McDonald's and Taco Bell. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much for taking the time. I, I guess I would start with from a you know, an average person who watches TV, sees advertisements, occasionally eats fast food uh, against uh, his wife's wishes. What's the difference between puffery and, and deceit in this case? Well, we use the good old fashioned eye test. Um, if what you see is what you get, um, you can clearly see the difference um, from what is being advertised as opposed to what you unwrap when you get the actual product. 
But how do you, how does an eye test serve as something that, that could be the basis for an actual lawsuit, right? I can look at any number of things and say, that doesn't look like it looks like it's on TV. Um, that pretty much comprises all advertising to some degree. Well, when you when I say eye test, I mean, there's clearly a definitive uh, percentage, weight, uh, some kind of a, a measurement to use to uh, determine it. But, you know, again, when I say eye test, I mean, clearly you can see a, a great difference between what you're buying and what you're actually what's being advertised and what you're actually buying. Right. And, and so from the percentage basis, I think you guys uh, the number was 35 percent when comparing burgers in real life to the ones in the ads. Uh, not to get too technical or granular here, but how do you arrive on that number? Are you taking burgers and, and measuring? Explain to people where that 35% comes from. Well, it comes basically from, you know, there are food stylists, there are um, professionals in the industry that would be able to determine those kind of things, and that's where you get into your experts. When you file a suit like this and when uh, the people involved file a suit like this, what's the goal here? Is it compensation? Is it to get paid back for the 35% per burger that you weren't getting uh, if you're on this suit or is it to change advertising itself? Well, first and foremost, as consumer advocates, which is what we do, right. um, we're trying to bring about change. Um, Sometimes change is, is difficult to accomplish without putting some kind of a monetary um, penalty or monetary component to it. So there is going to be a, a, you know, a financial or monetary component to the, com to the claim. Um, however, change is mostly what is determined behind what we're doing. And I think in that sense, particularly when framed as a consumer advocate, if this were a situation where any one of these uh, fast food chains or fast food companies were to say, we will change our advertising in line with what you're asking for if you drop the suit. Is that something that you would say would be on the table or something that's acceptable? Uh, that's something we'd have to, unfortunately, consult with our clients and our co-counsels to decide. But, you know, there's been quite a bit of time and effort put into this. And um, I think that it's really necessary to bring about change, but also to make sure that there's some compensation with the, the general public. You know, you're talking about tens of thousands, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people that have been affected. How much of the money, I think, if you, know, if you put out a baseline uh, for you win this case and you get $5 million or $8 million, how much of that goes to the people that you're saying were, were hurt or hindered in this case? And how much of that goes to you? Well, in a class action lawsuit, they will establish a class and the class will be funded by, you know, the, the amount of the settlement. And then people will come forward, depending on how, how many they are. Usually the attorney's fees are determined um, by the judge and it's, you know, done on a, an hourly basis with, you know, some sort of a, um, you know, a formula that arrives at where, you know, the work is compensated adequately for the amount of time that was put in. Right. I think the question coming from the sense that you know, there, there has been an uptick of suits like this against uh, fast food companies, and I think you're involved in three or four of them at this point. And I think the question immediately becomes, uh, you know, why, right? Is this something that, from a consumer advocacy perspective, or is this something where you see an opening here, there's clearly uh, a movement forward on these cases, and therefore you're going to target every fast food restaurant you see? Well, it's not really targeting every fast food restaurant we see, there are plenty of times we've been asked, um, give us an example of a company that has, you know, that is doing it right. You right. Know, 
comes to mind. There are several companies that are doing it correct. You know, we would say a Domino's Pizza, a Dunkin' Donuts. Those are companies that aren't advertising to the extent that uh, these other companies are advertising and, and bringing about, you know, the necessity for these kind of suits. So it's really something that uh, we feel as consumer advocates is is blatantly in the face of what consumers are asking for, and we've you know acted accordingly. Yeah, it, it's interesting, especially you know there's a lot of talk about shrinkflation, um, consumer with a lot of concerns. Uh, the fact that these suits not only are happening but seem to be starting to edge forward a little bit. Anthony Russo, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. And the manhunt intensifies for a convicted murderer who escaped at Pennsylvania prison last week and residents where he was last seen are on edge. The fact that this guy is still out there after all this time, it's, it's insane. This morning, no rest for the investigators pursuing an escaped convict in Pennsylvania. Police believe the man is still within about a two-mile radius of the prison where he was being held. A residential security camera caught sight of the fugitive early Saturday morning. And police have received more than 100 tips since he broke out on Thursday. CNN's Polo Sandoval joins us now. And Polo, what more have you learned? Howdy, hard to believe that this morning will mark now four days since Danella Cavalcante actually broke out of a prison. And yet they haven't been able to track him down. There is some hope that they have an idea more or less of where he is. Uh, and that's mainly the search that they're focusing on right now, which is Pocopson Township, Pennsylvania. You'll find it about 40 miles west of Philadelphia. And at the same time, it's also, and here's the thing, it's less than two miles when you Look at this map. Less than two miles from the Chester County Prison, which is where Cavalcante, this 34-year-old convict, actually escaped from. Uh, now, initially, authorities had said on Friday they were worried maybe he was on his way to Mexico and on his way to his native uh, Brazil eventually. But then this ring camera video surfaced over the weekend. Turns out that a resident actually spotted uh, Cavalcante in that footage, which is why authorities have really been honing in now on this particular area. It is heavily wooded. There are hundreds of homes, according to authorities. So what we've seen, Adi, is authorities going door to door and asking residents for permission to actually go into their home to clear them. One of the biggest concerns right now for authorities is that maybe Cavalcante has broken into a house of somebody who's been away for the Labor Day weekend. So they're really urging residents this morning to be extra careful if they're coming back after being away for a few days, if they notice anything out of the ordinary, to pick up the phone and call authorities. He's a small guy, about five feet, about 120 pounds, curly hair. And authorities are in the air, on the ground, searching for him. And, and people have called with tips, right? They have. They've received about 100 tips, uh, and they believe that he may have tried to break into a couple of houses. But at this point, again, they're really focusing on this area with hundreds of homes. A quick background on him. He had just started serving a life conviction after being convicted for stabbing his girlfriend to death in front of her children. So it really speaks to the dangerous nature of this individual. And this is why Chester County uh, District Attorney's Office has been stressing this over and over again. This is an extremely dangerous individual. If they see any sign of him, pick up the phone and call authorities. In the meantime, does anyone know how he actually escaped yet? It's still a big question after all this time. Over the weekend, authorities did say that they will be in a position eventually to share that information. But right now, it's all about finding him. All right. Polo, thanks so much. Thanks, you bet. Well, a gender reveal celebration in Mexico turning deadly after the pilot hired to fill the air with pink smoke ended up crashing in front of the guests. In this viral video, you can see a couple standing in front of a sign that reads, Oh Baby, surrounded by balloons. Moments later, an aircraft flies over the couple and releases the smoke. But as it flies off, you can see it twist as the left wing breaks apart 
when the plane spirals toward the ground. Red Cross officials say the pilot was taken to an area hospital where he was pronounced dead. A judge has handed down two of the longest sentences yet for Capitol rioters. Now the Proud Boys leader is set to hear his fate. What that could look like next. And the legends surrounding the birth of rock and roll have long been dominated by straight white icons like Elvis and the Beatles. Now, the new CNN film Little Richard, I Am Everything, takes a closer look to reveal the black queer origins of rock and roll and the man who brought it all to life, Little Richard. Here's a preview. It's just like a shot out of a cannon. His voice, he created the rock and roll icon. Sorry, y'all. It wasn't Elvis. The first songs that you love that your parents hate is the beginning of the soundtrack of your life. Little Richard's lyrics were too lewd to get airplay on the radio. It was just as clean as you were. He was very good at liberating other people. He was not good at liberating himself. Michael was inspired by me. Prince James Brown, I discovered him. Jimi Hendrix was my guitar player. I used to stand on the desk and do Little Richard. Everyone was beholden to him. Little Richard, I Am Everything, tonight at 9 on CNN. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Well, mercifully, college football is back in full force, and it was capped off with a Sunday night showdown in Orlando between two top 10 teams, Florida State and LSU. Coy Wire joins us now. His Cardinals and my Buckeyes both 1-0. What happened last night? Because I went to bed at halftime, and it was an amazing game. Oh, this was the most highly anticipated matchup this opening week. Number eight, Florida State, putting in that work against the number five LSU Tigers on Labor Day weekend. More like Slaber Day. 11th meeting between these two teams. First time both of them ranked in the top 10, though. FSU's quarterback, Jordan Travis, had himself a day, leading the Knowles to 31 unanswered points, throwing for four touchdowns, three of them to Michigan State transfer Keon Coleman. But he ran for a touchdown as well, so he surpasses Jameis Winston and is now tied for second on FSU's all-time touchdown leader list with Chris Ricks, 75 overall. It's a blowout, 45-24, Florida State. U.S. Open now, and for the first time at any major since 1968, we'll see two black American men in the quarterfinals. 20-year-old Ben Shelton delivering two 149-mile-per-hour serves fastest of the tournament and his win over Tommy Paul and he's going to face world number 10 Francis Tiafo who advances to the quarters for a second straight year. It's actually three American men in the quarters as well as Taylor Fitz advanced too. Now 19 year old Coco Goff facing 33 year old Caroline Wozniacki the former world number one who retired in 2020 had two children but has been rolling in her first major back. Wozniacki 
forcing this one to three sets, but Coco got her groove back, ripping Wozniacki 6-1 in the third, becoming the first teenager since Serena to make back-to-back -back U.S. Open quarterfinals, and her dad was pumped. Watch this. Oh, my. My dad isn't in the box anymore because uh, he gets too nervous. So uh, he's somewhere in one of the suites, and he's been apparently doing laps around the stadium, I heard, uh, during the matches. So uh, I don't know if he can hear me right now, but, you know, I felt his energy, his good energy, even though I can't really see him. <laughs> Love that. Defending MLS Cup champs, LA Galaxy hosting soccer legend Leo Messi and Inter Miami. Stars were out. Prince Harry was there to see the GOAT. Owen Wilson showing up. And how about Leo watching Leo? Leonardo DiCaprio and his popsicle. Check out the reaction from Selena Gomez, though, as some Messi magic was stopped by LAFC keeper John McCarthy. Messi did not score in this, but did have two assists as Inter Miami win 3-1. They are still undefeated since his arrival just about two months ago. Uh, Corey, my favorite part was Coco Goff's dad, who, like my dad, <laughs> could never actually sit and watch the game, would just walk in circles around the stadium the entire I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's good stuff. And hey, we forgot about the Minutemen, UMass. Audie, I believe you Thank went there. You. And you're one and one <laughs> on the season. I know those Buckeyes did well, and yes, Stanford, but you're UMass Minutemen, they're uh, doing all right. Audie is so. Appreciate it. She didn't even talk about it. You know, I was talking about Ohio State all morning. Audie just knows, right? I'm just There's here just for Coy's morning energy. Thank you for this. You're just giving Thanks, it. Buddy. It's waking me Appreciate up. Thank it. you. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Well, good morning, everyone. Audie Cornish is with us. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Monday, Labor Day, September 4th. 70,000 people are stranded in the Nevada desert for a third straight day, but roads could reopen today. People at the Burning Man Festival are stuck in ankle-deep mud too thick to drive on, forcing organizers to impose shelter-in-place orders. Donald Trump dominates the 2024 Republican field and pulls even further ahead in a new Wall Street Journal poll. He's the top choice for almost 60% of Republican voters. In fact, 78% of them say Trump's actions after the 2020 election were legitimate. And on this Labor Day, President, Trump, President Biden will travel to Philadelphia to march in a union parade as another union threatens a major strike that could impact the whole country. The United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's big three automakers have less than two weeks to negotiate a new labor contract. The union's president says members are prepared to walk off the job if demands for improved wages and benefits are not met. And tomorrow, the chairman of the Proud Boys is expected to be sentenced for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Enrique Tarrio was convicted of seditious conspiracy back in May. Prosecutors are asking for a 33-year prison sentence. And overnight, four astronauts have safely returned to Earth after a six-month stay on the International Space Station. The crew splashed down off the east coast of Florida. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone. Audie, thanks good for hanging morning. out. Um, I often see these moments of Burning Man and think, that's interesting, probably something I'm never going to be a part of <laughs> or not. care that deeply about. Some people do, except this weekend, everybody seemed to care about it because everyone was stuck. Yeah, it's an epic Burning Man, I would say. Epic, that's, yeah. yeah it it, that's what they always say it is. This one actually <laughs> exactly. is. Just hours from now, roads could finally reopen at the Burning Man Festival where tens of thousands of people are still stranded in the desert. 
Now, organizers say they'll be making the decision this morning. Roads leading in and out of the festival have been shut down since Saturday after heavy rain created ankle-deep mud. Officials say the thick mud made it virtually impossible for cars, buses, and RVs to leave. A lot of people walked four miles through the mud to get out. Here, you can see some vehicles that tried to leave but became hopelessly stuck. So much water. We are flooded. We're going to be stuck here at least a couple days. This is nuts. Now, this is what people have been trudging through for days now. Festival goers, they've been hunkering down and told to conserve food, water, and fuel. CNN's Camila Bernal reports live from Burning Man. We planned on leaving right after the burn, which is Saturday night. Um, and then it started raining on us like that night. A dramatic washout at Burning Man, trapping tens of thousands at the festival and delaying the event's marquee moment when a massive wooden effigy known as the man is set on fire. The decades-old gathering in the Black Rock Desert is no stranger to extreme heat, but rarely like this. They're sinking. I think barefoot's the way to go. Two to three months worth of rain falling in just 24 hours, turning the desert ground into thick cement-like paste. Festival goer Dean Zeller from Santa Monica, California, shot this video with his ankle deep into the mud. And from the air, you can see the standing water, muddy roads, and countless RVs, vans, trucks, and other vehicles parked and helpless. When it was really wet, you couldn't do anything. You just lived here. There's really no way to walk miles, you know, to get out of it. We couldn't leave. <laughs> like, we were stuck, basically. People couldn't, could barely walk, let alone ride their bikes or drive out of here. And so that started getting a little scary. Many of those who tried to drive away were stuck. The situation so concerning that even President Joe Biden was briefed on the matter. While organizers have often described the festival as a self-expression event where harshness meets creativity, few expected it to be this bad. It's a survival event. Like you come out here to be in a harsh climate and you prepare for that. Event organizers said roads remain, quote, too wet and muddy, and local authorities have told thousands of people to shelter in place, though some attendees braved the conditions to make it out, <laughs> including actor and comedian Chris Rock and another festival attendee, DJ Diplo. They posted a series of videos as they trekked more than six miles in the mud before the two got a ride on the back of a fan's pickup truck. Local officials are urging those still on site to conserve food, water, and fuel. Still, some attendees downplayed fears, telling us they think they'll manage just fine. I don't think that it's gonna like people are gonna like starve or do anything over there. The community in itself would help each other, and there's a lot of people who overstock for this thing too. It's really beautiful, actually, when you go into the camps. Everybody was helping each other out. Camila Bernal, CNN, Black Rock City. Now, to be clear, it was just 0.8 inches of rain that fell in Nevada's Black Rock Desert on Saturday morning, but it made a difference. So we're bringing in meteorologist Derek Van Dam to talk to us about what happened. Derek, can you explain? Yeah, well, I mean, 0.8 inches is roughly about two to three months worth of rain in a short period of time. And in the desert, 
that makes a big difference. So it all comes down to the structure of that topsoil in the desert. So what you're looking at with this 3D visualization tool is the difference between loam, which is like our earthy topsoil that you and I would plant our vegetable garden in, for instance, compared to that of the dry, barren clay that you would find in the desert. When the rain falls incessantly over the same areas, the earthy topsoil known as loam would just absorb it, right? Not a problem. But when you're talking about the desert or a playa where Black Rock City is located, well, that water mixes in with that clay and it creates that cement muddy mixture that people inevitably got stuck in and continue to be stuck in today. But there is some good news. But first, let's show you these visuals once more because they really speak for themselves. Just incredible to see this city that pops up with 70,000, but you can see how difficult it is. And that's the playa. That's the dry basin that uh, this particular city that pops up once a year uh, for this particular Burning Man event happens to find itself in. And yeah, look, this is normally a dry time of the year, but unfortunately the rain fell coinciding with this inclusion of a large city. But the good news that I mentioned is that the rain is coming to an end. There are currently no flood watches across the western portions of uh, Nevada, and you can see the rain drying out. So we'll start to see the evaporation. That mud will turn to more concrete, and we'll start to dry things out and hopefully open up that exit route as quick as possible. So, hey, Phil, Audi, Maybe next year we can go together. I don't know. Just an idea. Yeah, bring an umbrella just in case, I guess, is what we've learned. Okay, okay. all right. I'll, I'll, I'll Derek, cover that part. Derek is way too man. cool for me to attend like a, like a hip festival with <laughs> and would make me look really bad. But like, I, I, like, I like the general idea of it. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Derek, appreciate it. appreciate you. Right. So next hour, we're actually going to be joined by the DJ and music producer Diplo. Uh, and because as you heard from Camilla, he and comedian Chris Rock actually escaped Burning Man, hitching a ride with a fan. We're going to have a live interview with him ahead. Well, tomorrow, the chairman of the Proud Boys is expected to be sentenced for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol building. Enrique Tarrio is convicted of seditious conspiracy. He's convicted back in May. Prosecutors now seeking 33 years in prison. The hearing comes after two other Proud Boys were handed hefty sentences by a federal judge on Friday. Ethan Nordian, who took over leading the group on the day of the insurrection, was sentenced to 18 years, and Dominic Pozzola was sentenced to 10 years. He's the one who smashed a window to the U.S. Capitol, paving the way for the first wave of rioters to storm the building. Joining us now, CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Hey there, Ellie. Good morning. Hey, good to see you. So uh, people are talking about 30 years for Tario, looking at these other sentences, but yeah. is that likely? I think it's unlikely that prosecutors get 30, 30, 33 years that they're seeking. But I also do think that Enrique Tario will get the highest single sentence passed down on anyone connected to January 6th so far. The top sentence thus far is 18 years. Mr. Nordine got 18 years, and the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, got 18 years. Now, prosecutors are being very aggressive with these leaders of these extremist groups. So what often Why? happens... What do they say? Is it because they believe that you did hard organization? Yes. Is it... Yeah. It's the organizational aspect. It's the fact that they were connected, working as a group together. There was planning. I mean, what Enrique Tarrio did, he's actually the only defendant other than Donald Trump who's not exactly charged for January 6th itself, Enrique Tarrio is the only defendant who was not physically present at the Capitol of the 1,100-plus DOJ has charged so far, but he might as well have been. He was arrested a couple days before, and he essentially engineered 
the plot to attack the Capitol. Right. The so undermines this idea that it was just sort of a riot that got out of control or a demonstration that got exactly. Out. And the other aspect with Tario is he was a leader. And under the federal sentencing guidelines, if you can prove someone was a leader of organized activity, you can bump the sentence up. So I think we're going to fall somewhere between 18 and 33 for him. Are you surprised by the length of the sentences we've seen so far? And, and you know, you, you mentioned kind of the range. Yeah. Is that all dependent on the judge or, or what kind of it, it's what up, people expect here? Yeah, it's up to the judge. In the federal system, we have this book, the federal sentencing guidelines, right. which used to be mandatory. But about 15 years ago, it became advisory, meaning judges have to consult it, but they have very wide discretion. They're not bound to it. Exactly. Um, I think the sentences thus far have been reasonable. I think the sentences have been severe, not over the top. But when you're talking about people who are charged, tried, and convicted of seditious conspiracy, not surprising to me to see sentences in the mid-teens. It is worth noting, though, DOJ has taken heat from multiple federal judges for undercharging and being too light on some of the other players, not Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. But remember, 1,100 plus defendants, a handful of them have been Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, but various judges have called out DOJ for being, and I quote the judges here, schizophrenic, baffling, for basically going too light on some of these folks, giving them misdemeanor pleas, giving them probation. But all that has happened, so I feel like lawyers are watching that really closely, but for the public, they're hearing about the former president's case. So is any of this going to impact that? So on the one hand, uh, Enrique Tarrio and the others are charged with different crimes than Donald Trump. They were charged with seditious conspiracy, no seditious conspiracy, no insurrection charge against Donald Trump. He's charged with conspiracy and fraud. On the other hand, it's kind of hard to justify 16, 18, 12-year sentences for other people who were involved in the insurrection, but not the person who really sparked it all and on whose behalf they were looking at. So absolutely will be relevant, I think, if, big if, if there ever is a conviction and sentencing of Donald Trump. All right, Ellie Honig. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. One of Donald Trump's GOP rivals is now warning that we could see another day like January 6th if the former president is prosecuted. And just hours from now, President Biden is set to speak at a union rally as he celebrates Labor Day in Philadelphia. This all comes as the auto industry faces a potential strike. The labor secretary will join us live next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, on this Labor Day, President Biden travels to Philadelphia to march in a union parade as another union threatens a major strike that could impact the country's entire economy. The United Auto Workers Union and the three Detroit automakers have less than two weeks to negotiate a new labor contract. The union's president says members are prepared to walk off the job if the companies don't consider the union's list of demands for improved wages and benefits. Believe me when I say I'm fed up. And one thing I want to tell you is this trash can is overflowing with the that the big three continue to peddle. If we want higher wages, better benefits, and a better future for ourselves and our families, then we're going to have to fight like hell to win it. There's a moment it didn't lead people to think they were heading toward a deal at this point. In a statement last month, President Biden said that all sides should work together to forge a fair agreement and that the UAW deserves a contract that sustains the middle class. Joining us now is Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue. Uh, Acting Secretary, thanks so much for your time. I want to start there because this kind of moment in labor generally over the course of the last several years, but particularly now we have seen, uh, I think, the leverage and the power to some degree. Uh, The dynamic has shifted uh, somewhat. We've seen it in the negotiations. We've seen it in the threatened strikes. We've seen it in the strikes that have actually taken place. But when it comes to UAW right now, uh, just to start, can you lay out what the administration's role is in these negotiations to the extent there is one at all? 
Yes, thank you so much, Phil. I mean, this president is the most pro-worker, pro-union president that we have had. And that means economic policies that center working people that are good for workers. It has created a tight labor market in which workers and unions have more power to demand change and demand what's right for workers, demand their fair share at the bargaining table. With UAW, the parties are talking to each other. It always looks like parties are far apart until they're not. We saw, you know, historic gains for West Coast dock workers and 29 ports between the ILWU and employers there. We saw historic gains for Teamsters in their negotiations with UPS. And so at this point, the UAW is at the table with the big three, and we uh, respect their process and are hopeful that they are going to grapple through some hard issues and hopefully come to an agreement that's a win-win. Yeah, unsaid in both the dock negotiations and the UPS negotiations, I think you played a pretty, pretty critical behind-the-scenes role in those negotiations. I think one of the things uh, that is difficult with this specific, with these specific talks, you know, Part of the UAW's issues right now are electric vehicles, the federal subsidies that electric vehicles uh, coming from this administration and the Inflation Reduction Act and a lot of the work that they've done, uh, which has been touted and rightfully so for climate advocates perspective. Um, how do you thread that needle with them when this is a policy uh, that you want to pursue in terms of electric vehicles, in terms of the subsidies that the IRA puts out there, but it creates issues with what should be allies of this administration, the UAW? Right. President Biden says, and I agree, that we can both solve our climate crisis and build an economy that's good for working people. Right? We can do both of those things at the same time. When we um, address, really, I mean, we're seeing the impact of the climate crisis all across the country right now. And we have to do something about that. And there's a there's an entire, you know, um, climate agenda to do that. There's also Bidenomics is about empowering workers and centering working people. And so all of the investments, including in the climate, are opportunities to create good jobs in communities that need them the most. We have to think about how, um, how the, what the impact is on workers. But just as recently as this, as this weekend, President Biden has said that we are going to make sure that we invest in and support the good middle class jobs uh, in places like Detroit, in places like Milwaukee, where, um, where working people have been built the auto industry that has led the world for a really long time. I know you're not in, in the political sphere, but I, I, I have been fascinated by UAW's decision not to endorse up to this point. Has there been any sense in, in your discussions, the administration's discussions, that an endorsement is contingent on getting some kind of an agreement uh, over the finish line that benefits them? No, I mean, the president is really focused on doing right by workers and enjoys obviously very broad support from uh, from unions, uh, from union leaders, uh, from working people. I travel the country and I talk to workers who feel like, you know, some sense of hope, right, that, 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 that this government is on their side, that we're focused on creating good jobs with a path to the middle class, that we're focused on opportunity. Um, and so, our, you, know, uh, you know, at this point, we are... Um, what it means to support the collective bargaining process means that we um, look to see that the parties have a fair shake at the table and the president believes that um, that th those outcomes can be good for working people, profitable for employers, and that's what's good for America. You mentioned Bidenomics, and I think this all kind of feeds into Bidenomics to some degree, but I, I want to play something that Jared Bernstein, one of the president's top economic advisors, uh, said yesterday. Get you to respond to it. Take a listen. 
82% support capping insulin costs for seniors at $35 a month. 81% support giving Medicare the power to negotiate for lower drug prices. 79% support tax incentives to create more manufacturing jobs. 77% support capping out-of-pocket costs on prescription drugs. These are all measures that are in place. These are the components of Bidenomics. So when someone tells you Americans don't like Bidenomics, it's false. Americans approve of the components above 80 percent. Acting Secretary, to, you know, I understand Jared's point because it was the same point that was made with uh, the American Recovery Act. It was, or sorry, the, uh, the initial... Uh, the rescue plan. Thank you. Sorry. It's been so long since I've covered the White House. Yeah. All of the six weeks. <laughs> um, but also the CHIPS Act. Also, like, if you take every single major piece of legislation that this president has signed into law, many of them bipartisan, and you take out the individual components, I have reams of papers sent from the White House to me saying individually these all polled 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus. And yet 75% of those polled uh, are not happy or comfortable with the current economic state of the country. The disconnect. What is it and why? So Bidenomics is basically three things. The first is investing in America. And that means repairing roads, making safe bridges, making sure that every family that powers up the internet at home has reliable high-speed internet. Everybody who turns on the faucet in their kitchen has clean drinking water. Those are broadly popular policies, and we're investing like never before. The second is empowering workers, and we're seeing a moment in which there is the highest approval rate for unions since 1965. And President Biden understands, and I think the American people believe, that we need to build an economy, especially back from the global catastrophe caused by COVID, that leaves no one behind. And the third piece is what you started with, which is reducing prices. Those are popular, and they're the right thing to do. They're also the smart thing to do. It's what creates a stronger American economy uh, and America overall. And those are popular policies. And when I travel the country and talk to people about it, I see that too. And I think it's something you're definitely going to hear the president talking about uh, later today, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Happy Labor Day. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy again vowing if he's elected to pardon Trump, should he be convicted, and warning that Trump prosecutions could bring about another insurrection. I am worried, George, that day by day we're inching in a dark direction for this country. I do not want to see another day like January 6th in this country. If you're unwilling to challenge Donald Trump, you should get off the stage. You know, uh, Ramaswamy, for example, is up there being a cheerleader and a fill-in for Trump. Um, he shouldn't be running for president. He should, you know, he, he obviously is trying to apply for a job for Trump. That's former Republican governor from Maryland, Larry Hogan, blasting 2024 presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy for his consistent defense of Donald Trump yesterday. Ramaswamy warned that the prosecutions of Trump could lead to, quote, another day like January 6th. Listen here. I think that many of these prosecutions against Donald Trump are outright, downright politicized persecutions through prosecution. I think we continue to set a dangerous precedent. I do not want to see us march to some kind of national divorce. And I am worried, George, that day by day we're inching in a dark direction for this country. I do not want to see another day like January 6th in this country. 
Back with us now to discuss Ellie Honig and Coleman Hughes. We're also going to bring in Semaphore Politics reporter Shelby Talcott. Um, I want to start with the picture that Vivek basically painted there um, and get your reactions to it. First from you, Shelby, because you talk to voters a lot. So obviously he represents a voice. Yes. Yeah. And I and I think what he said is uh, who knows, right? That I never thought January 6th would happen in the first place. So it's perhaps entirely reasonable to think something like that can happen again. But I also think that you can't decide whether to convict or charge someone based on what a possible reaction from the voter base is. It's not how our, our justice system works. Um, but his whole, all of his commentary is sort of seeded with, I think, some of the, like, Trumpism patois. I mean, hearing about a national divorce, that's something you hear from certain kind of Republican congresswomen. Coleman, yeah. I mean, what do you hear in how he kind of stitched together that sentiment? Yeah, well, I think he's taken the strategy that he is just going to hold water for Trump. He's seeing that 60 percent of GOP voters are enthralled with Trump and he may even be auditioning for for a VP spot. Right. And but, but as you said, the problem with this is that you cannot hold justice hostage to mass violence. And certainly he would not accept this argument in the other direction. For instance, if there was some uh, if there was a court case where left wingers were going to riot if it came out a particular way, there's no way he would accept that that was a reason for the the trial to come out one way or the other, right? So this is this is blackmail in a way. Yeah, there, there's a suggestive undertone to what he says here. I think it's clear, and, and I think it's worth reflecting. We, we've now seen four indictments of Donald Trump, and thankfully everything is held. We've not seen violence. We've not seen mass attacks on anything. I was actually at the courthouse and Trump Tower when the first indictment came down. And we didn't quite know, right? How is there going to be a mass demonstration? Is there going to be violence? And thankfully, there was not. There was there was loud protest, which you can and should do under our First Amendment. Nothing more than that. And it seemed like each successive indictment, we saw less and less of a physical presence. Now, look, you never know what any lone wolf is going to do. That, to me, is the biggest fear. But I think it's been reassuring and a, and a reassurance about the sort of solidity of our process that we've been able to do this so far completely peacefully. Shelby, can I ask you, just uh, we'll move on to other topics, but on Vivek himself, he has a way that we've seen be very effective in the past, particularly with certain parts of the Republican primary electorate, of alluding to things, not officially attributing them to himself. And I think you were making this point in terms of the national divorce, uh, where he has one step removal to say, well, that wasn't exactly what I was saying. I was just citing people that were saying these things. And yet they are extraordinarily inflammatory. Sometimes they are outright bordering on racist, misogynist. You, know, you name the word. Never explicitly saying them himself. It, it, does he know what he's doing here? Is this part of the plan, part of kind of his strategy? Well, Vivek's very smart, I think. That's so, my point, so, right? Like, he knows, yeah, like he's not... I, I mean, I can't get inside of his head, but he's smart. He, that's what you're supposed to... He knows what he's... on the ground. Well, everyone said that Ron DeSantis about. would be the Trump mini-me, yes, but in a and, way, we're actually seeing another one. Yeah, and so I, uh, what's really interesting about Vivek's comments um, this weekend, and in general, really, is he is openly running as kind of a MAGA 2.0. He has said that he will take what Trump did and and go further with it. The, I think the problem with it that I'm finding on the ground is voters like that, but at the same time, it's it's the ultimate conundrum that the entire Republican field is having, which is you can't run as an anti-Trump Republican because voters don't like that. But you also can't really run as a too much of a pro-Trump Republican because then why wouldn't voters just vote for the real thing? Right. So it's it's this interesting thing, and Vivek is... is Probably the furthest one who's who is doing the latter. 
Although there's an opening, yes. you would think, for vice president, which is what I, yes. I sort of assume whenever he opens his mouth. Is that incorrect? No, that's right. I think that's right. But I mean, to, to your point, he is very smart. He knows what he's doing when he's talking. He's very strategic. Yeah. And I do think he thinks like a chess player. He thinks several moves ahead. I mean, we saw this with his 9-11 comments, right? He wasn't explicitly saying, I think 9-11 was an inside job, right. but he was saying it without saying it. Right. And then gave himself some room to like come exactly. back around. And the fascinating part, and this is slightly tied to this, I know we have other topics I want to get to, but I think, you know, he gets lit up on foreign policy. Every one of his uh, primary uh, opponents has, has attacked him on foreign policy, right? Mm -hmm. And I read and listen to what he says and think, I've talked to Republican voters, particularly in some of these primary state, early primary states, and like this is totally in line. Mm with where they are. Yeah, voter, Republican voters, it's really interesting because he actually probably has the point of view in terms of foreign policy that at least half of the Republican base has. Like, right. it's not a crazy, th these foreign policy plans that he has it sound may sound super crazy, but a lot of Republican voters like them. And so he is appealing to a lot of the base by doing that. Yeah, they may not be fleshed out and make a total ton of sense from an actual policy implementation, like what he said he was going to do if he were in Mike's Pence, Mike Pence's mm -hmm. position on January 6th. Literally not possible. And based on nothing that is ever something anybody could do, and yet it kind of connects to some degree. You know, I'll one. No, 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 it's okay. Um, I actually want to move to the touring of the hurricane damage with President Biden because, in the past, when there have been disasters, Ron DeSantis has been at least present when President Biden touches the ground. This time, nowhere to be seen. Um, does that, like, make sense in this moment? So I think, I think his team said that it was, it would have caused too many issues on the ground. My question with that is, well, Biden was already coming, and I don't know how much more security you need. So if he was coming already, I don't know how much it would have impeded efforts on the ground to also show up. Uh, and so, and it's not like Ron DeSantis isn't also doing things on the ground, right? He's clearly on the ground elsewhere. But I do think ultimately when you're running for president and you don't show up, and then you have someone like Rick Scott who does show up, it, it's going to, people are going to make assumptions. And, and you have Rick Scott praising Biden's. I was shocked to see that. Which I is didn't surprising. The calculation yeah. I mean, of that. the step back of these two individuals in the lead up to the midterms, one viscerally loathed one another in public and attacked one another constantly, almost on a daily basis. And to watch the two of them compliment one another was. Well, know. it's always been that it's a natural disaster. We come together, bipartisan, right. da, 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 but you're saying DeSantis a, has too much at stake? I, I think it was also a little bit of a, Rick Scott's comments were a little bit of a snub towards she, DeSantis she indirectly. Is this a new rule now, now that Chris Christie was punished, essentially, for welcoming Barack Obama to my state, New Jersey, when it was destroyed by Superstorm Sandy? Is this a new thing now? You can't. If you're a Republican or a Democrat and there's an opposite party president, you, you can't even be seen with him at the scene of a natural disaster. I mean, I ask that rhetorically, but if, if that's the state of play, that's a sad state. I think he's thinking ahead to the next debate and he's, yeah. he's thinking, you know, what is Ramaswamy going to say if there's pictures of me, you know, looking buddy buddy with Biden? Yeah. They're going to say this guy is not as serious. He says he says never back down. But look, he's cozying up to Biden. Right. Yeah. Right. It, you can't not pay attention to it just because of that, yeah. as sad as it may seem for a broader politic at this point. All right, Coleman Hughes, Shelby Tal Talcott, Ellie Honig, thank you guys. I apologize for getting a little one-tracked. I know you on wanted to one. avoid the 14th Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that eventually. It'll come back. There's a lot of big comments on it this weekend for sure. All right, well, just as the school year begins, students and doctors around the 
country are voicing their concerns over the shortage of ADHD medication, and thousands are still stranded at that Burning Man festival. DJ and music producer Diplo, along with Chris Rock, were able to make it out by walking more than six miles before hitching a ride. Diplo is gonna join us live, just ahead. Well, just moments ago, President Biden departing from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and route to Philadelphia this morning. He's planning to speak at a union rally before he marches in a Labor Day parade. Now, it comes as a major union is threatening a major strike that could impact the whole country. The United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's big three automakers have less than two weeks to negotiate a new labor contract. The union's president says members are prepared to walk off the job if demands for improved wages and benefits are not met. And as students across the nation are returning to class, a nationwide shortage of Adderall and other medications used to treat ADHD could be getting worse. CNN's Meg Terrell joins us now. And you actually spoke to a student who is dealing with their ADHD. And what are they thinking about this shortage? We did. Her name's Clara Pitts. And CNN actually spoke with her in February when she got accepted to her dream college. And now she's packing up to go. And she and her family are really worried about how they're going to navigate this shortage when she's there by herself. Take a look. Left to pack up. Packing up to start college, a time of nerves and anticipation. I think I'm just most excited to get out into the world and see what I can do. For Clara Pitts, headed off to her dream school, Brigham Young University, there's an added level of anxiety. Welcome to ADHD Packing for College. Because the medicine she takes for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is part of a nationwide shortage. It's just really scary not knowing if I'll have consistency in my medication. It started last fall when one drug maker had a manufacturing delay, but it hasn't let up. Clara has had to switch from Adderall to another medication called Vyvanse, but some dosages of that drug have been hard to come by as well. All of this has made back to school season even more stressful for students like Clara and their families. These young people often have difficulty paying attention, sitting still. Columbia University's Dr. Warren Ng says treatment can have dramatic results. It can really change a young person's life overnight. So they suddenly are able to do the work that they want to do, but are having difficulty focusing their attention. But relief from the shortage may not be coming soon. Prescription rates for the medicines are at record highs, up more than 45% in the U.S. over the last decade. A CDC study this year found an especially large jump in prescriptions for adults in the first year of the pandemic. Also complicating the picture, drugs like Adderall are stimulants, controlled substances the government says have a high potential for abuse. So the Drug Enforcement Administration sets limits on how much can be produced. But in a joint letter with the FDA last month, the DEA said manufacturers aren't producing as much as they're allowed to. Last year, they said there were about one billion more doses that they could have produced but did not, and said data for 2023 so far show a similar trend. For some, the shortage could mean dashed dreams. A lot of young people that I've seen have just given up, that they've either just felt that 
you know, it's too difficult. Um, maybe I shouldn't go to college or maybe I shouldn't have this job. Despite those worries, Clara is looking forward to school, planning on majoring in electrical engineering. But she worries not just for herself, but okay. also others starting school with ADHD and struggling to find their medicines. This is the first time that me and other people with ADHD are starting a new school year without our medication in some cases. And I think time is going to tell whether or not we sink or swim as a collective ADHD community. And we reached out to all 11 makers of Adderall and its generics listed on the FDA's drug shortages website. Only two of those companies got back to us, the biggest ones, Teva and Sandoz. And they told us they're making as much as the DEA allows them to. And so there's just a lot of questions about what is going on here. Why is the industry not making enough? And this unprecedented demand we're seeing leading to the shortage, perhaps lasting even through the end of the year for some companies. Yeah, the persistence of the shortage, I think, is what's most surprising. That has just continued throughout the course of now, it seems like a year, potentially yeah. longer. Meg Terrell, great report. Thanks so much. Thanks. Now this morning, the former lead singer of the popular rock band Smash Mouth is receiving hospice care at his home. Steve Harwell co-founded the band in 1994. The group rose to international fame with hits such as All Star, Walking on the Sun, and a cover of the Monkees' I'm a Believer that was featured in the film Shrek. Harwell retired in 2021. The band's manager says Harwell's fiance is by his side. He also wrote, quote, Although Steve is here with us still, sadly, it will only be for a short time. Well, chilling new developments surrounding the BTK serial killer. CNN obtaining disturbing sketches drawn by the killer of women tied up inside barns. And now his own daughter is helping with the investigation. And she'll join us live. That's next. Dennis Rader, a 59-year-old municipal worker, church leader, family man arrested over the weekend, suspected in 10 murders in Wichita, Kansas, in an area over the last 30 years. So that was when the world learned the identity of the BTK killer almost two decades ago. But now police think he may have killed more than the 10 people he pled guilty to murdering. Dennis Rader gave himself the BTK nickname, short for bind, torture and kill. Police arrested Rader in 2005. He's currently serving 10 consecutive life sentences. He's the prime suspect now in a 1976 cold case in Oklahoma and several other unsolved crimes across three states. And officials in Oklahoma are asking the public for help by releasing never-before-seen sketches by the killer. The digital images obtained exclusively by CNN are disturbing. Now, we're going to show them because investigators believe they hold important clues about potential crimes, and they're asking for the public's help. They show three bound women in what investigators say appear to be barns. Just recently, law enforcement intercepted communications from Raider in prison, revealing there may still be some hidden items in old barns. That's according to the sheriff. We'll be joined by the daughter of the BTK killer right after this. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The BTK killer, now the prime suspect in several unsolved crimes across three states. Joining us now again is Carrie Ross and the daughter of the BTK killer. She's been offering volunteer assistance to local investigators. Carrie, can you start by talking about what kind of assistance you're offering? How do you believe you can help this investigation? Um, I was I contacted McDonald County, Missouri in June after I learned of the unsolved murder case of Shauna Garber in um, Missouri. 
um, I offered my help after looking at some photos of her remains and um, the bondage upon her body. Um, I, I was quickly contacted and connected to Osage County, Oklahoma, and they flew me in. Since then, I've been working hand in hand with law enforcement in Osage County specifically on these cases. Um, I am a key to these cases. I know my dad very well. Um, I'm an expert on him. Um, we're, we're matching my memories, um, say, to his evidence, uh, mm -hmm. possible crime scenes. Um, Why do you so think I'm that like, you're I'm a key component to all this? You said that you're a key component. So help us understand why you think he might have drawn these sketches. Do you th actually think there's some clues here? Was it a desire to be cryptic? Um, we're very concerned that sketches were actually drawn in real life. They're first person. We believe he has several more missing and murdered. Um, there are at least nine cases that have been reopened across three states. Um, we're looking at several more. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss complete numbers right now. I don't think anybody has a concept, really, of full numbers. We're, there's 200 of these drawings. We're trying to sort out, are these actual crime scenes? Are they actual missing victims? Um, in one case, um, we, we have an identification now on the on the young woman in the green shirt. I'm not at liberty to discuss who she is. That case is open and active. We're asking the public to help us figure out where where she possibly was taken and we're trying to find um, her body. You frequently speak publicly about your father. Why, what motivates you? Um, what motivates me is victim services, victim advocacy for children like me of serial killers. Um, at this point now, it's victim advocacy for these unsolved murders and missing women. Um, even if they're not my father's, they still need answers. There's cold cases here that have been going for 50 years. Somebody needs to speak up for them and put some spotlight on it. Um, that will be me. I will be working on these the next 50 years if I need to. Is that because are you trying to reckon kind of you're growing up with him versus what he was doing in this other life? Um, some of it is definitely a reckoning and coming to terms. It's been a couple decades of coming to terms. Um, honestly, it's just the right, proper thing to do. There's there's hundreds of thousands of missing and murdered that are unsolved in this country. Um, we need to put a lot of spotlight on it. We need to build cold case units. We need to build federal funding um, if we can't get it at the state. Right now, I'm speaking up because I've got law enforcement partners, and then I have other agencies that are not doing their due diligence that missed things 20 years ago. I have regional and federal Law enforcement that needs to step up. There's things that need tested. There's cases that may need taken over possibly okay. by the feds. So I'm using my platform and my voice to try to get um, spotlight on these very important cases. You visited your father in prison. He's around 78, I understand, in bad health. Um, what does he say to you when you confront him about these crimes? Um, when I've asked him, he's run me down a lot of rabbit holes. He's done a lot of speculative um, speak, a lot of profiling. Um, he comes up with theories. And then he, he'll I'll say something about one location. He'll mention another one or he'll mention fish, fishing with me by there. Then he'll jump to something else. I've asked him to draw maps of locations. We have many places to check. We've got to mark down on maps of possible sites that he's like left evidence or possibly bodies. And so we have, we have a good deal of work in front of us. He's also compared himself to uh, another person who was arrested and charged with the murder of three women in Gilgo Beach. Um, again, a similarity in that the family believes they didn't know what was going on. Um, do you see similarities there? 
Um, yes, he did say that, like, um, Hurman is like a clone of my father. Um, there's similarities. They both were the same age. They were both arrested at 59. They both had a wife. They both had two children. They both were long-form serial killers. Um, they both stalked their victims. But Hurman did it through phones. My dad did it in person. Um, the, 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 they both um, committed bondage. They both strangled. We're still waiting to find out a lot more on Hurman. Now we're, now we're finding out a lot more on dad. Um, so it's, it's just an ongoing process of seeing where we're going to land with both of them. And it's going to be a long-term event for um, both cases and both families and the victim families, unfortunately. And right now, Herman has still just been charged with that case. But Carrie Rawson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Well, good Monday morning, everyone. Audie Cornish is back with me. And right now we are waiting to find out if roads will finally reopen at the Burning Man Festival, where thousands of people are still stranded after heavy rains turned the desert into a mud pit. The famous DJ and music producer Diplo managed to escape after walking for miles through the muck with comedian Chris Rock. He's going to join us live. Donald Trump widening his already huge lead over his GOP rivals in a new poll. It also shows that an overwhelming majority of Republican voters think his actions after the 2020 election were legitimate. And 385 people are still unaccounted for nearly a month after the catastrophic wildfire on Maui. We'll speak to the governor of Hawaii to get the very latest on the search effort. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. You know, it was a bit of an odd moment yesterday when Betsy Klein, our White House producer, sent a pool note. She's in pool with President Biden, and it was about the president getting an update on Burning Man, which was not something I ever expected to get from our White House team. And yet that's where we were. Especially with since it was about rain in the desert. Rain in the desert. Again, a lot of unexpected events, but just hours from now, maybe the end is near. Roads are about to reopen or could reopen at the Burning Man Festival where tens of thousands of people are still stranded in the desert. Organizers say they'll be announcing the decision this morning. Now, roads leading in and out of the festival have been shut down since Saturday after heavy rain turned the ground into ankle-deep mud. Officials say the thick muck made it virtually impossible for cars, buses, and RVs to leave. Some people walked for miles to get through the mud and get out. Here, you can see some vehicles that tried to leave became hopelessly stuck. So much water. We are flooded. We're going to be stuck here at least a couple days. This is nuts. This is what people have been trudging through. For days now, festival goers have been hunkering down and told to conserve their food, water, and fuel. Camilla Bernal is live near the festival. And Camilla, let's just start with the latest on the situation. Hey, audience, Phil. Well, look, it's still muddy, it's still messy, and it's still pretty wet from what we can see in some areas. We're exactly at the main exit and entrance to the playa. This is what they call the eight-mile access to the playa, right? And so it's where the playa turns into the road. We've seen a couple of cars today trying to get out of here, even in the middle of the night. And it's going to be difficult today. The shelter-in-place is still on. The thing is that if you're trying to get out, they will let you. 
but you are going to have a very difficult time. I want to show you what the vehicles of the Bureau of Land and Management look like. They've been in that mud and it, they are completely uh, covered in mud. The operation here is just getting started because they're waiting for thousands and thousands to try to get out. But the people that get out, their cars look like this. And the people that are trying to walk out have told me, look, it's taken me three hours. What they end up doing is that they get these plastic bags and wrap their shoes uh, with duct tape. And they've told me that really is the only way that you can walk for miles and miles as you try to get out to make it to this road to the main exit. Um, again, it's just difficult. People were not expecting so much rain, so much mud. But a lot of people that I've talked to have remained extremely positive. Look, they say they've had a great time at the festival. They say that they've enjoyed their time here. And they're trying to make the best out of a very difficult situation. But officials are telling them, conserve food, conserve water, fuel. Because if they do have to stay here for extra days, a lot of them do not have enough food or water uh, for just a number of days that they had not planned for. That's really the concern for a lot of people. They have been sharing. This is an event where people uh, essentially feel free to self-express, to create art, to come together. So you're seeing those vibes. You're seeing uh, that positivity. But officials here are saying just be careful because you still may not be able to get out today. They're saying they're going to look again when the sun comes out, decide after uh, they look at the mud and the conditions and how things improve or not. Um, so in the meantime, we're just waiting for the sun to come up to see how things are going to end up going for today. But so far, it's still looking muddy and it's still looking messy. So we do expect to see people coming out. The question is whether officials will give them that green light and make it official. Guys. Yeah. Wait and see. Hopeful vibes. Camila, great reporting. Thanks so much. Now that muddy mess couldn't stop Diplo from making it to his next concert. The DJ posted to his Instagram saying that he walked six miles through the mud out of the desert before hitchhiking his way out of the festival to make sure to make sure that he made it to Washington, D.C. on time. And he was joined by Chris Rock in the back of a truck with a group of fans. Naturally. Diplo made it to the airport, walking barefoot on the tarmac, and posted to his Instagram quote, "No one believed we would get to the DC would get to DC for the show tonight, but God did." So joining us now is three-time Grammy Award winner Diplo. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. So were you uh, barefoot and walking, duct tape and bags walking? What were we dealing with here in terms of a plan I, to get I, out? I tried the duct tape and walking, but I had some pretty good uh, boots that had zippers instead of ties, and uh, they worked pretty well. They they were caked with mud, so they got pretty heavy. They were like three pounds each at one point, so I have some pretty strong leg muscles after that walk. But um, when you started to walk in the mud, you kind of realize you have to stay low to the ground, and it's very slippery. And if you don't walk on where it was chewed up from tire marks, it's pretty easy to move out of there. Um, what was it like watching it. What was it like watching other people? I mean, was there a lot of dialogue in between tents for people actually debating, should we leave, should yeah. we stay? Uh, it was around Friday, I think 11 p.m. I was having dinner um, in our camp and our camp next door was Chris Rock was there, uh, Sidney Crawford, Kyle Gerber, Austin Butler, Michael Kivas, a bunch of people were there that were um, you know, living in that camp. And they had the news that there's no chance of leaving tonight because there's going to be even more rain forecast. And uh, 
The main issue is getting a car out of there is really impossible when it's muddy because you're going to get stuck. And if they have a lot of cars stuck on, on the on the on the playa, it's going to create huge traffic jams for for the eventual exodus of people. So there was no information. We had to we checked the Burning Man Twitter, and I think at 10 a.m. we said let's regroup and see if we can walk out of here. And um, I was I said that's the only way we can do it is we, we can walk out. And uh, we planned a, an excursion that next morning, and I think we headed out, me and about 20 other people, and we just we just walked. And we didn't see many people on the road, and we just we kept walking. They said the gate was closed. It's, it's a general term for the gate. The gate wasn't allowing cars in because people come to Burning Man the last day for the burn. They love the Sunday and the Saturday, but there's no actual gate to, to, to open or close. It's just the matter of the, the, the mud ends and a, and a paved road begins. And that paved road goes to Gerlach, Nevada, and we had to walk to that to that, to that paved road. Are you still in contact with people there? Uh, most of my friends did get out. I mean, a lot of the DJ friends that I had were all asking me how did I do it, and I give them all advice. And I think like ten of my friends that were that had worked this weekend because it's Labor Day weekend. Of course, we have to work. Um, we all made it out. A lot of my friends made it out. Some of them are still there in the camp. They're having a good time. They're waiting it out. Um, you know, this this. The mud always dries up there. It's the middle of the desert. You don't expect rain, but if you have sunshine, it can dry up in four or five hours with, with direct sun. It just has been o- overcast the whole time, so it's been really hard to, to dry out. Uh, the moment between deciding you were going to actually launch the excursion and the video that I think everybody in the country has seen up to this point, including the, the what seemingly random appearance of Chris Rock as you scrolled around uh, the camera, which wasn't so random since he was in camp next door, what, what was that like, those hours? What were you talking? What were you guys doing as you were kind of making this trek towards uh, finally getting picked up? I mean, for sure, Chris is going to have a huge bit in his next special about Burning Man because he was really uh, bizarrely scared of what was going to happen. He thought there was going to be cannibalism and a day later and, you know, didn't know people were going to run on our camp and steal our stuff. But I said, look, man, this is a great. People know what they're doing here. Everybody here is camping. They all have self-reliance. Um, and we just said, I, I was surprised. He had his New York Knicks jacket on, and we just, he just got up with us and started walking. And we walked about three hours in the mud, and um, he was happy. It was me. I think Cindy Crawford walked with us, Kaya Gerber, Austin Butler, um, Randy Gerber, um, a writer, a couple of uh, producers from TV, a couple people that just wanted to get home to their children and they didn't take no for an answer. We were just like, look, we can make it out. There's no one stopping us from walking. And, you know, it was a challenge, but it, it was honestly one of the highlights of the whole trip was just getting out there and enjoying the time out there and, you know, seeing the desert and walking through the mud and meeting fans. And some kid recognized me on the road and said, hey, I'll give you a ride for the next two miles. And we gladly took it. And um, we had a good time in the back of the truck. We rode for about four miles into the city and we sat at a bar for a while and hung out with people and found, found a ride to Reno. It was like uh, the old times, you know, just 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 caravanning across the, the country. Anything for that kid? Free tickets or uh, a sign? Diplo merch? I some, yeah, I got it. I got his number. He's, he lives in he lives in Nevada, so he's gonna come to some shows. His, his name was Tony. He was awesome, really good guy. And then we found some hippies in the street that had a, a sprinter van, and we, we said, "Hey, we'll give you a thousand dollars, and we'll Venmo you if you take us to the airport." And he had some beers and we just got in the back of the car and we just drove for three hours and listened to some like Neil Young and just drank some beers. And uh, I made my, somehow I made the, the, the flight and I made the show. I have no idea how it happened, but then went to my show in DC and had a great time. And now I'm back, back in Nevada now uh, here in Las Vegas for a party. And um, yeah, I'm glad I made it out. But I think, I think it's people that Burning Man, the organizers are very prepared. It doesn't rain often. It's the first time I think in history it rained during the festival, but it rains sometimes and they're prepared for 
this kind of situation. Um, I just think a lot of people that aren't navigating and camping and like able to, to handle themselves might have been scared, wow. but it's it's wasn't that bad. There wasn't any Ebola breakout like like I saw the memes. There wasn't any cannibalism. Um, everybody was having a good time. People were making mud sculptures, huge sculptures out of mud, and just kind of continuing with their art. And had it, you know, they might be out there for two extra days, but they had a great time. Honestly, between a multi-hour walk with Chris Rock and then that car ride you described, um, it sounds yeah. potentially better than what, what a normal Burning Man would have been. Yeah. Uh, Diplo, we really appreciate the time. Glad you got out. Awesome you got to D.C. And then, I guess, back. Shout uh, out again. to Tony. Yeah, we appreciate <laughs> yeah. it, man. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks. So on to politics, because a new Wall Street Journal poll finds Donald Trump's big lead over his Republican opponents. It's actually getting bigger. And even more Republican voters say his actions after the 2020 election were legitimate. Harry Enten is here with this morning's number. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Donald Trump builds on his commanding lead in the GOP presidential primary. According to a new Wall Street Journal poll, the former president is pulling away from even his closest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Not even his four criminal indictments, nor his decision to skip the first debate, seem to be making much of a dent in Trump's support. CNN senior data reporter joins us now. So, Harry, what is today's number? All right, so this morning's number is... 46 points. That's how much Ron DeSantis now trails Donald Trump by in the Republican primary post-debate. He was down just 24 points back in April. So DeSantis is going in the wrong direction. Of course, that's just the top line, the fact that Trump's ahead 59% to 13%. It's underneath the hood where I think the most trouble comes in for DeSantis. This is the very favorable view of Trump and DeSantis among Republican primary voters. Look in April. Look how close they were. Trump at 53% on the very favorable view. DeSantis at 55%. DeSantis was actually slightly ahead by this metric. Look where we are post-debate. Look at Donald Trump's very favorable view among Republican primary voters. 60%. DeSantis down to 32%. So the fact is, it's not just that Trump is getting better polling numbers. It's DeSantis is getting worse polling numbers. Uh, help me with the math here. Does this mean some of that those points went to any other candidates or is it really all Trump? It really is a lot of Trump, but there is one candidate that Ron DeSantis is very worried about. His super PAC is especially worried about, and that's Vivek Ramaswamy. And why, why are they worried about Vivek Ramaswamy, given that Trump is running so far ahead in this race? Well, why don't you take a look here? This is an interesting question. Second choice for the GOP nominee. You can see that DeSantis is ahead on this metric at 35 percent. But look who's second. It's Ramaswamy at 16 percent. So the idea of who's going to be the alternative to Trump, DeSantis folks believe it could be Ramaswamy. And you know what? It's not just that Ramaswamy is the second choice of a lot of voters. It's also that the more Republicans see of him, the more they seem to like him. Whose debate performance most exceeded your expectations? Look at this. Who came in at number one? It was Vivek Ramaswamy at 35%. Look how far down DeSantis was at just 9%, guys. All right, Harry, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, joining us now, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, and Jamal Simmons, former communications director for Vice President Kamala Harris. Guys, thank you for joining us. Uh, Alyssa, I want to start with you because I look at the numbers and I feel like I'm on a kind of hamster wheel at this point, looking at the numbers every single month and coming to the same conclusion of A, the Republican primary is over, 
And B, it seems like everybody to some degree is either trying to be the vice president or trying to just attack one another and not the guy who's winning by 40 points. Uh, pretty much nailed it there. Listen, um, there's no historic evidence or example where um, another candidate has overcome such a significant lead, the lead that Donald Trump has had for some time. And I think where this springs from is a lot of consultants who are advising the, let's call them, tier two campaigns say, you've got to really wait for the right moment to go after Donald Trump because you can't risk alienating his base. The problem is when he's 35, 40 points ahead of you, there's no way to make that up. Also, and then, what would be the right moment? It, well, exactly. If it's not indictment one, two, three, or four, I'm not really sure when the moment comes. And not the debate stage. Um, or the debate stage. And when you look at also his legal calendar, there's if you're banking on some kind of a conviction taking him out of the running, that's likely not going to happen ahead of July when we have the GOP convention. I hate to say it, I think it's pretty much cooked at this point that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, barring something, some major external factor. So what is it about the Ramaswamy kind of surge right now that's like, what's the genesis of it, I guess? A lot of people who aren't in kind of primary politics, aren't kind of living in the conservative media space, maybe haven't listened to him much, don't understand, only see kind of little snippets of it. You know, he had the benefit of kind of being Trump's proxy at the debate. He sounded like Trump. He carried himself that way. He was bombastic. He attacked people. He did the outsider thing. So it kind of makes sense that he'd see a surge after the debate. Yeah. He's also been working it. This guy's doing a lot of self-funding. He spent a lot of time in New Hampshire and Iowa. He's a bit of a right-wing media darling, um, but he's got a ceiling. Um, there's also some polling that showed that his numbers actually dropped after the debate. I think for a lot of female voters, frankly, who's extremely off-putting. Um, I don't think that this is someone that's a, a serious candidate Hence in a real the numbers way. for Nikki Haley, huh? We just passed over her, but obviously she, her she was she next did in line it. after yeah. the debate. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing that I'm most interested in, kind of when you have this dynamic right now, is there are a lot of Democrats who are anxious because they're Democrats. <laughs> no offense. Um, but my sense is that there's a lot going on underneath the hood to some degree, both the Democratic National Committee and with the Biden campaign that maybe people understand. You're connected to that world, worked inside the White House uh, uh, for a period of time. What are people missing right now? But when, if they think that Trump is the opponent, either likely or almost certain to be, uh, that Democrats should know in terms of what the operation is actually being set up to do. Well, listen, I think the first, first of all, there's an assumption that this election is going to be about the economy and inflation, right? Those are the arguments the Republicans are going to try to make um, when they go into the election. I think on the Democratic side, what we also know is the, this election is going to be about culture and it's going to be about um, uh, democracy. And so the question is, are we going to have an America where everybody gets to participate, where women get to be in charge of their own bodies, where uh, uh, LGBTQ people um, are going to be treated fairly? Is that going to be a, a, an America that we're going to have? And are we going to have an America where the rule of law actually matters and we're not going to have revolts against the Congress when there's a problem with the election or people perceive a problem with the election? So this idea of democracy and culture is going to go alongside the economy and inflation. And I think the president has got some cases to make about the economy, you know, 13.5 uh, million jobs, uh, inflation's on its way down, wages are on their way up. So it's all starting to work. I think this message has not been landing the way that he would like. And then, of course, we and others keep talking about his age. Um, how much of uh, defense is there against the age issue? Age is going to be a factor for people who care about age. I think the president has said himself, look at me, watch how I work. I think you can look at the record that we just started to talk about. And the question now is everybody's focused on the Republicans. So we asked this question about, you know, how people are thinking about the Democrats. The Democrats have just started advertising, just started to talk about this. We were a long way from a, from a point 
where Democrat versus Republican, Biden versus Trump, it's going to be on the ballot. It's more than a year from now. So we've got a long time for the Democrats to make their argument. One, one thing, if I may say, that I get hung up on with kind of this argument of, um, you know, it's, it's American democracy on the ballot. It's the future of American democracy versus Donald Trump. I think for a lot of voters, putting that kind of on the back of an 81-year-old man is really tough for people to stomach. If you're saying the entire future of this republic lies on the back of an 81-year-old man, when you're, you know, is that saying, how you think they heard the midterm arguing? I, I think, it, and I think it worked in the midterms. Democrats outperformed expectations, but I think it's a little bit harder when you're going into four more years. Well, uh, one other thing I want to add because I do think it's relevant. Uh, Senator Mike Rounds actually spoke to our Dana Bash yesterday about Mitch McConnell, whose health issues have obviously come to the fore. Here's what he had to say. He was in good shape. He was direct. Uh, he said, you know, he said, I had that concussion. And he said, they warned me that I would be lightheaded in, in the future and that I've got to be aware of it. He said, it happened twice. He said, it just so happens I'm doing it in front of reporters. There's no doubt in my mind that he is perfectly capable of continuing on at this stage of the game. Alyssa, I just want to bring this to you because without being macabre, these kinds of incidents definitely undermine a political argument that says your guy isn't healthy, your guy is too old. I think the public now is hearing a lot of stories of elderly members of uh, the sort of lawmaking class who are struggling. So what does this mean for that Republican argument about Biden's age? Well, I think we have to have a national conversation about the sort of geritocracy that runs Washington, D.C. And there's a way to talk about it that's not ageist, that's just being realistic about expectations of our elected leaders. You know, I think Mitch McConnell, it's a legitimate conversation, as is Dianne Feinstein. You're representing the most populous state in the country but, you know, struggling to decide what you're voting on. And by the way, just to, to Jamal's point, Donald Trump's 77. He's no, or 78. He's no spring chicken either. So we're talking about, you know, people who are outliving the median age of most men in America still in positions of extreme power. And I think we need to address that. You know what worries me about the Mitch McConnell situation? <clears throat> Again, thinking about the future of the country and how little confidence people have in our institutions and in our politicians. I just wish the McConnell people, God bless him. I hope he's okay. But I wish they would level with the American people about what's going on with them. Because I think when young people see this, they see somebody who has two episodes that don't just look like being lightheaded. And they, all they say is something that's really kind of simple. Like, oh, he's just lightheaded. Don't worry about it. I think they ought to tell people what's going on. They get a lot of credibility from people to say, okay, he's struggling with something. Let's give him a chance. John Fetterman did that. And people reacted very positively. I think the Mitch McConnell people to take a lesson from Fetterman and tell us what's really happening with the senator. All right, Jamal Simmons, thank you. And Alyssa Fair Griffith, thank you. Happy Labor Day, guys. Likewise. Union kid, I like that. Happy Labor Day. <laughs> Thanks, kids. <laughs> well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy took a tour of the devastation left behind by the historic wildfires in Hawaii. He is promising FEMA's funding will be replenished when Congress returns to the Hill this week. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green joins us next. We're going to ask him for the latest update on the ground. Stay with us. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy led a bipartisan delegation of lawmakers to Hawaii over the weekend, stressing the need to rebuild and touring the fire-ravaged community of Lahaina, where 115 people were killed in the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than 100 years. 385 people remain unaccounted for, according to the Maui Police Department and the FBI. Joining us now is Hawaii Governor Josh Green. Governor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to get to lawmakers in a minute. First, can you talk about the number of people who are unaccounted for? I think there was some reporting expectations that that number could drop, but it really hasn't. So can you give us a sense of what's going on? 
Yes, I'd like to be really clear about this. So, well, the number was 1,200 for some time, then dropped to 800, and then dropped to 385. Uh, 385 represents what the FBI and the Red Cross and other uh, lists have uh, have given us. There are currently 41, 41 active cases being investigated that have been filed as missing persons reports to the Maui Police Department. So that's the universe of active investigation. The number 385 is the list of everyone who, in a broad way, where we've cast a very broad net, uh, we have been able to get a name for. What we would like to do is we'd like to see more people file police reports. So instead of just having a first name or just mm -hmm. a last name, we have some more details so we can get into it. Now, I understand this was a bipartisan delegation that came to visit from Congress. But at this point, do you believe that the federal government is doing everything it can? I do. Uh, the president was very gracious with us. Within six hours, he approved our major disaster declaration. He's been extraordinary. I was so appreciative of Speaker McCarthy coming with the bipartisan delegation. Everyone's working together. And I think that's critical for us in America. We need to see that, but a pit, uh, particularly for my people, on Maui and, and all the victims in Lahaina. Everyone was very upstanding. Everyone was very compassionate. And I don't want to see any politics in this one. So I thank them all. I know there's been some conversation about what it would mean to rebuild. Um, you've made some moves regarding preventing investors from coming in, sort of predatory investors to take homes, et cetera. Um, but let's talk about yes. insurance. Can anyone really feasibly rebuild there or will insurers decide uh, whether or not it's worth doing? That's a very good question. So uh, lots there. First of all, yes, we've had over 3,000 homes either totally destroyed or damaged. They're not habitable right now. The people of Lahaina have to choose when to rebuild. They have to be the people that tell us how they want to rebuild. People are getting insurance claims filled, and anyone who had a mortgage is getting it paid uh, if they choose to take that insurance money and pay it down. But it's going to be some time. We, of course, are going to have some property uh, damage that's also going to have toxic chemicals on it. The EPA is there right now. This, is, again, is going to be a community decision. I think that there will be opportunities to build in the region more, uh, more readily. That means up north or uh, beyond the borders of Lahaina. But are there fears uh, that claims land. could be denied, that people will look at what happened here, look at the other climate issues uh, that, the, that the island is facing and really have to charge uh, residents to make that decision? Well, if people had insurance, you can bet we're going to insist that that gets paid by the uh, insurers. We have a lot of those issues because we've had lava flows and tsunamis over the years and the insurance market adjusts to that. That's something that we're going to press very hard for to get our people protection. You've also been calling for tourists to come back. Now, I understand that it's something like 6,000 acres. This is out of the whole island. Um, but what do you say to people who are uncomfortable coming to the island? They believe using resources that could go to people who are still struggling to rebuild. Well, we are sensitive about that. But people who come to Maui, with the exception of uh, the part of West Maui and Lahaina that's been affected, they will be helping us to heal and and recover. And uh, those who come to Maui because they've loved it for these many decades, uh, they will help us because people will have their jobs back. We've dropped by about 70 percent our travel to Maui. Uh, all of Hawaii, of course, is open otherwise. And the rest of Maui is open We'll make some more announcements in the coming days, but just know in our in our hearts and, and from you, you will be helping our people if you do come, as long as we're sensitive about Lahaina and that area. 
Finally, what's your message to the people right now who are on the island, who really feel like they're struggling um, and it looks like it's going to be slow going? Uh, that our hearts are broken for them, but we will do everything possible to get all the resources we get directly to families. I'm going to push against predatory behavior. We will try to set up resources that go directly to people much more quickly than usual. We're setting up some large funds uh, with lots of different entities, including The Rock and Oprah and others, to get money directly to people each month. So there are a lot of financial resources, but it will take time to build housing. We do have an 18-month plan with FEMA to make sure people have stable housing in the region. I just am so heartsick that people have suffered this kind of loss. But in Hawaii, we use the word ohana, which means family. And that's how we're going to approach this. And we thank everyone for their great aloha for our state. Everyone who can support should do it through the Hawaii Community Foundation or the Red Cross. That helps our people uh, recover and rebuild. That's Governor Josh Green. Thank you for your time. Mahalo. Well, as House Republicans are strategizing about how or when to move forward with a possible Biden impeachment inquiry, the White House is going on offense. We'll tell you how next. And a long lost shipwreck from the 1800s is discovered in Lake Michigan. That remarkable find. Stay with us. Those are live pictures in Philadelphia, where President Biden will speak next hour at a union rally in celebration of Labor Day. Meanwhile, back in Washington, many Republicans on Capitol Hill are pressing ahead with their preliminary efforts to impeach the current president. And now the White House, not just waiting, it seems like they're going on offense, enlisting two dozen lawyers and legislative liaisons to counter those House efforts. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now from Rehoboth Beach, where President Biden just left. And President uh, Priscilla, one of the questions I've had on this is, Clearly, White House officials don't believe there's any merit to the push for impeachment, and yet they're not waiting and seeing what happens next, are they? No, they're pushing back already. But to your point, Phil, White House officials are really monitoring whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy can even summon enough votes to open a formal inquiry. McCarthy has previously said that he would be required to have a House floor vote to open an inquiry. And he also noted that it's not a declaration by one person, which is what GOP hardliners have suggested he can do. And the reality for McCarthy is that he can only lose four GOP votes, and that is going to be difficult in and of itself when there's hesitancy within the Republican conference. But the White House is not waiting. They're pushing back. As you mentioned, the White House uh, has spent more than a year putting together a team of more than a dozen legal, legislative and communication experts to push back on Republican-led investigations. That also includes two top attorneys with experience in this space. And we're also told by sources that they are meeting multiple times a week. So this is clearly front of mind for the White House as the president goes into a very busy September. Bill? You know, Priscilla, in terms of how the building operates, the West Wing, the council's office, uh, to some degree EOB across the street where a lot of the staff is, do they try and keep this piece of it separate from, you know, what the president's going to be talking about today in his remarks in Philadelphia? Yeah, the White House is really focusing on the economy, uh, and that is really what's going to be the focus today in Philadelphia. This is an event that's hosted by union members. Of course, they are very important to uh, the president, uh, and they buoyed his uh, bid back in 2020. So the White House, for its part, really wants to focus on their issues, be it the economy or abortion, which is what the campaign has been putting out ads for, attacking the Republican stance on that front 
following Roe v. Wade. And so all of that is really going to come together in the weeks to come. At least today, the president going to be speaking about the economy of two union members and not impeachment. Phil. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. This morning, NASA welcoming home four astronauts after their successful return from a nearly six-month stay at the International Space Station. They were traveling at more than 17,000 miles per hour before the Crew Dragon vehicle deployed parachutes and splashed down off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. The capsule reaching 3,500 degrees as it sliced back into the Earth's atmosphere. The astronauts are from the U.S., the United Arab Emirates, and Russia. They conducted three spacewalks and oversaw more than 200 science and tech projects during their stint in space. Now to a remarkable discovery in Lake Michigan, the Trinidad, a schooner missing since its final voyage on May 11th, 1881, was found 270 feet underwater. That's according to the Wisconsin Historical Society. Historians Brandon Bailrod and Robert Jake used survivor accounts and sonar to locate the wreck near Algoma in eastern Wisconsin. Now, officials say it was carrying a load of coal bound for Milwaukee when it suffered a leak and sank. But the entire crew managed to escape. The only loss was the ship's mascot, a Newfoundland dog. Coming up, you'll hear from a festival DJ and his dad who escaped the Burning Man Festival before a rare rainstorm turned the grounds into a sticky mess. Their experience and how they helped others who were stuck in the mud, next. live from Burning Man. They're sinking. I think barefoot's the way to go. The shoes are not working out. That's Michael Cherney, a.k.a. DJ Trips, who performed at this year's Burning Man Festival in Nevada. He, along with his father, finally made it out of the site where heavy rain turned the remote desert into a muddy mess, leaving tens of thousands of attendees stranded. Joining me now is Michael Cherney and his father, Dr. Mel Cherney. They just got back from the festival. Um, you guys are in California, and we've seen so many pictures of vehicles kind of stuck in the mud. Can you tell me why yours made it out? Well, it, the Bernie Man Camp, it's... Uh, it has a huge footprint, and and our camp was at the back end of it, and you exit through the rear of the camp. So, the 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 roads in the more peripheral margin of the camp were not as chewed up as the inner camp. So we were on I, J K K is the last road, and so what we did is. Uh, one of my camp members and I, we got on our bikes. Uh, we got up at five o'clock on yesterday morning and we rode around and we picked a, a circuitous route uh, through through the back end of the camp to get to where the exit road was. We knew that once we got on the exit road, we would be able to get out to the pavement and that's how we got out. Michael, we heard from DJ Diplo this morning uh, about how he was able to get out. I wanted to get a sense from you about uh, helping other people at the site. You guys had provisions. Did you have enough? Did you share? Yeah, you know, a lot of people actually plan to be there um, going into today and even tomorrow because they do they do kind of like um, they do. They burn the man on a Saturday and then they'll burn what they have as a temple on Sunday. 
And a lot of people, even friends that I know that build art pieces out there, they were even already planning on staying till, you know, uh, as late as Wednesday this week. So, you know, a lot of our neighbors, um, you know, we were giving out food when we left because we knew they were staying a little longer than us. And, you know, we had people in tents in our camp that we offered, you know, stay. We had also an RV in our tent in our camp. So we were able to give some people some shelter when it started coming down a little more. You know, along those lines, Mel, one of the things that I've been trying to square is the stories from the weekend, it seemed uh, bordering on catastrophic and people very scared to this is actually what this is all about. This is the community. Uh, we prepare for inclement weather or inclement moments to some degree. Can, where where was it for you guys? We were more at the, at the second end of that range. Uh, we're veteran campers. I've been out to the my first burn was uh, 2003, so I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never seen it rain like that out there, but um, we've been stuck in rain out in Joshua Tree and in Calico, and, and, and some of those places, it's the same kind of mud. It's, uh, the playa is um, it's a dry lake bed. It's the second largest playa in the United States behind Bonneville Salt Flats. The world land speed record uh, over 700 miles an hour was made at the Black Rock Playa where we're at. Burning Man takes a very small footprint. It's down in the southern part of the playa. The playa is like about 30 miles long. And um, if you know how to, the playa, the surface material is like a silt and when it's dry, it's very smooth. And that's why it's easy to drive the art cars and bikes on it. But when it gets wet, which is all through the winter, you can't, it's very sticky. You can't drive in it. You can't hardly even walk in it. And so it's never really rained like this at Burning Man since it started. This is a one-off. You said, so that you're, you, you said that you're experienced campers. Can you just tell us what worries you do have now that you're out, you're looking back at the images? What do you think people should be concerned about? How sticky the mud is. I mean, if you start spinning your tires on your vehicle, you'll, in very quickly sink to your axles and once you're at your axles you're not going to get out unless somebody pulls you out yeah, michael I, I think you sent a picture of over of a rainbow it's, you said perfectly kind of described the sentiment uh for those attending burning man as somebody who's never been likely will never make it out that way why what, why <laughs> come on <laughs> um well the cool thing about burning man is you know you definitely you definitely try to find the small things that could you know make the situation better so i think that that saturday uh you know two days ago you know actually the sun came out a little bit the double rainbow showed up and you would just hear cheering all around the camps and you know you still couldn't really walk too far so we kind of stayed in that section of i my dad mentioned and around our neighbors so honestly that saturday night we all kind of just got together and had a little celebration because the man was supposed to burn and he ended up not burning. So we actually did a little, just kind of all hung out. And I think that was a really cool way to kind of salvage that last two days of rain. We all just kind of went under a tent. It wasn't raining Saturday. We were able just to, you know, just have a good time with all of our neighbors before it was, you know, people started trying to exit the next day. Well, Michael and Mel Cherney, sorry you missed the burn, but glad you made it out. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Well, the music world lost a legend. How hundreds of fans in Key West honored the great Jimmy Buffett. That's next.
And of course was the iconic intro guitar riff to American singer-songwriter Jimmy Buffett's classic Margaritaville. Buffett died on Friday at the age of 76. His fans gathered in Key West, a place near and dear to Buffett's heart to celebrate the only way Jimmy Buffett fans know how. Spanned decades and included other hits such as Come Monday and Cheeseburger and Paradise. According to an obituary on his website, Buffett had been fighting Merkel cell skin cancer at the time of his death. Joining us now is CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell. Meg, I think what's interesting, we were just talking about this. Skin cancer, very familiar with it. Um, this I was not familiar with. What is yeah, it? Yeah, this is a very rare form of skin cancer. About 2,000 cases are diagnosed each year in the United States. It is becoming a little bit more common as the population ages and as the diagnostics get better. But this is something to be aware of because it tends to grow quickly and it can be hard to be treated if you catch it too late. If you look at the five-year survival rates for this, if you catch it when it's localized, the five-year survival rate is 75%. But if it's spread to other parts of the body, that goes down to 24%. So it's really something to be aware of, even though it's rare. You said there's better diagnostics. What are the other risk factors? So it tends to show up most often in older white men. Uh, we find that 70 or 80 percent of the cases are in people over the age of 70. Men are twice as likely as women to be diagnosed with this. And 90 percent of the cases are in people who are white. So uh, spending a lot of time in the sun, of course, is a major risk factor for this cancer. Signs and symptoms? So it tends to show up in places that are exposed to the sun. The face is the most common place, but it can show up anywhere. Uh, if you find a new bump that's uh, red, pink, or purple, uh, and it grows pretty quickly, it usually doesn't hurt. But anything like that is something to go talk to a doctor about. You know, we hear about moles that change. That's something to be aware of. Uh, and, you know, be really vigilant and protect yourself when you're in the sun. Sunscreen, cover up, wear a hat, sunglasses, all of those things. Mike Terrell, thank you very much. Go to your dermatologist, always. <laughs> Um, all right, we are about to look. I think it, J President Joe Biden is in Philadelphia, should be heading to that podium in just a short while. Uh, remarks on Labor Day, also marching on Labor Day, as he always does every year. We're going to keep you posted throughout the course of the day. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.